Joining us now from somewhere near Heartland is our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. Glad you all survived mm-hmm. uh, the the heat wave, I guess. Uh, you know, in the, we uh, we don't do heat well here in no. Minnesota, I guess. I even talked to a friend that lives down in Arizona and was kind of saying, that must be terrible on you folks being 90 degrees. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> it <So>. is. <laughs> yeah. But ours, it was kind of a dry heat, at least here. So it was, um, I was in Yuma, Arizona working, and it was, I don't know, 112 or something like that. And every other person I met told me, yeah, but it's a dry heat. So How I did you feel? Was it, was it okay that it was a dry heat? Did it feel that bad or not too bad? It didn't feel bad at all. I oh. guess you wouldn't want to spend an inordinate amount of time out in it because it would probably sap you then. But you you didn't really notice it. Oh, and good. If, if I didn't know what the temperature was, it'd be even less bothersome, I think. Sometimes just knowing that it's yeah. so hot. Or, or, you know, when the wind chill, before they changed that a little bit, we used to get the wind chill and they'd be just these huge numbers below zero. All of a sudden, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I'll probably uh, succumb to the weather in about two minutes outside. So it would uh, certainly impact our mind and how we see things. Didn't they change that, Al, how they looked at the wind chills? Because I recall when I used to be in television news, I remember saying it's 80 below in the wind chill. And and then they adjusted something because I know I actually honestly was out doing a stand-up on, I remember, somewhere and actually did get frostbite in the tips of my, my ears. And because, of course, back Ow. then on TV, you had to, you know, look good. So you wore your earrings, which, of course, are metal and which is really dumb in the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then your fingers. But so why did they do you know why they actually changed it? Because now you never hear 80 below anymore because that's they adjusted something. I know. I think it was supposed to be more like now we hear feels like ah. a lot. So I think it was supposed to make it probably of better use for us because we can say well it's 10 below but it feels like 30 below (laughs) and before we like you say we get these 80 below things and after a while you just you don't fully understand how cold uh, things are so i think it's probably better when they say yeah but it feels like this (laughs) and that probably uh, that probably works better in our brains saying well yeah i know what 15 below is so i kind of know what it feels like (laughs) I just had a nice talk with Bruce from Waldorf. He found an injured uh, uh, injured pigeon, and uh, we just had a really uh, nice uh, nice visit. We're both uh, familiar with the Matawan area, so we talked a lot about Matawan and the history of that and everything. And uh, Bruce asked if I would give the number for the Pelican Breeze. Uh, I'll be on the Pelican Breeze September 10th, this Sunday at 1.30. And if anybody's interested, it's 507-383-7273. The new crop of chipmunks, it looks pretty impressive. (laughs) Man, there's a lot of them out there, little guys. They're they're cute. if they just leave my tomatoes alone, man, they love tomato juice. They bite a little hole in the bottom of the tomato and just lap it up as it comes out. Is and that I, I what's going like on? Tomatoes. I was wondering about that because I was picking. I have so many tomatoes this year. It's really 
by the way, a really good year for tomatoes. And I was noticing little, little bites, and I was wondering if it was the my little, I've been catching uh, in traps, little, I don't know if they're field mice or voles, or I'm not sure what they are, but I was wondering if that, but it could be the chipmunks too. Yeah, I, the ones I see here and other um, other individuals might be doing that also, but boy, chipmunks just seem to have a a love for tomatoes, and I'm sure it's passed on from one generation of chipmunks to the next because they're out there and say, hey, look what Uncle Roy's doing there. <laughs> and then they go over and eat that too and say, oh, man, this is like the best thing ever. So they uh, they learn pretty quickly. I, the young robins are swamping the bird bath here. They still have kind of a little little striping on the breast and you can tell they're young ones and they're enthusiastic and they're pugnacious because they <laughs> as they splish and splash the others kind of practice in the grass like they're in the bird bath so when they get in there they know how to do it and i listened to the whistling wings of morning doves as they took flight by the feeders as the robins were fighting and the doves, they say, can hit a high speed of 55 miles per hour. And Whoa. I found a nest here a while ago that had likely taken a morning dove only a few hours to build. And boy, it looked like it had only taken a few <laughs> hours to build. Uh, chickadees and cedar waxwings are in the yard. Waxwings are named for the waxy red tips on their secondary wing feathers. And Doug Tellamy, that professor of, yep. uh, I think it's entomology and wildlife ecology. I know he's at the University of Delaware. He said a pair of chickadees needs six to 9,000 caterpillars to raise one brood. And that's what they have here is Ooh. one brood. And insects are best for feeding fledglings because, well, the chickadees can't afford pizza or cheeseburgers. <laughs> so I'm hearing red-eyed vireos, those sultry wet afternoons, they're out there singing, here I am in a tree, look at me, vireo. Uh, there was an ornithologist by the name of Bradford Torrey who said, the red eyes eloquence was never very persuasive to my ear. It's short sentences, it's tiresome upward inflections, it's everlasting repetitive. It's it's everlasting repeating, it looks. I can't read my writing, isn't that terrible? <laughs> yeah. um, I've always thought that whoever dubbed this video, the preacher could have had no very exalted opinion of the clergy. Oh, um, I just I love hearing the red-eyed vireos. It's just uh, they're they're out there singing when other things are not, and I enjoy bird songs. So those that sing long into the year are are my friends. I'm seeing a lot of flickers on the lawn. Most of our woodpeckers have black and white plumages, but the northern flicker is brownish, has a white rump patch that's conspicuous in flight. Each night as I walk, I'm hearing an eastern screech owl. He calls persistently, waiting to go to voicemail, I guess. <laughs> uh, this little pop can-sized screech owl is all beak and eyeballs. Uh, grasshoppers rub their legs together in stridulation, which is uh, making sounds by rubbing body parts together. Uh, crickets and katydids use their wings to make music. So grasshoppers rub legs together, crickets and katydids wings. 
I've been watching roadside LBJs, little brown jobs. There's juvenile Vesper sparrows. They're similar to adults, except their plumages contain little or no rufous color. They're a little larger than song sparrows, and they hit their peak migration in October. And right now they resemble a washed-out version of adult, of an adult. Uh, I'm also seeing some horn larks out there. They look... Uh, they're nondescript and also look like a washed-out version of an adult. And they will uh, they molt out of their juvenile plumage by August, so they're uh, changing a little bit. Sedrans, somebody said, do you hear any sedrans now? You know, sedrans, man, they are such interesting birds. For a while, you, you can't go anywhere without hearing them. And they have a nomadic breeding cycle. It's not very common. Northern breeding populations breed here in May through June. And then breeding occurs in the southern U.S. from July into September, coinciding with the departure of this northern breeding population. So this suggests that sedrans migrate to their northern breeding range for the first nesting, then migrate farther south to nest again. But the latter breeding season, the one down south, could be by late arrivals or in response to habitat quality in the southern portion of the range. There's all kinds of ifs. But it sounds like they they breed here, raise a family, then they go south, have another family. The first Saturday of September each year is International Vulture Awareness Day. I oh. hope everybody celebrated it and went out. <laughs> They are wonderful. Uh, they have acidic stomachs that kill harmful bacteria and rotting meat. Their intestines have bacteria that makes them resistant to diseases from rotting meat. They commonly eat roadkill, which makes them targets for car collisions. Mm. And I know I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here, but, boy, we as humans need to stop littering, which attracts animals onto the roads. I hear a lot of folks saying, boy, there's so many things hit on the road. It's terrible. Well, a lot of the raccoons and skunks and possums and even vultures are out there because we throw stuff out. And uh, if nothing else, they're going to investigate it. The American biologist Paul Ehrlich I, I was talking to some kids about the importance of every species. And uh, we were probably slapping a mosquito at the time, so we weren't helping that species much then. But Paul Ehrlich, he likened the loss of a species from uh, a community to randomly popping out rivets from the wing of an airplane. He said, remove one or two and the plane will probably be fine. Remove ten... 20 or 50, and at some point there will be a catastrophic failure and the plane will fall from the sky. I visited with the Sandersfelds of Fairmont. They were camping at Myrie Big Island State Park, and they were saying they had pileated woodpeckers coming to their feeders. Uh, Jack May said, is there any upside to buckthorn? Yeah, we all, uh, <laughs> oh, we whine about buckthorn, you know, and, and boy, I'm not pro-buckthorn. We need to get rid of it. Well, you know, it uh, used you know to what? be sold in, in landscape places or nurseries because it was considered this pretty, pretty shrub you could put in your yard and everything, and it was hardy, but yeah, it was a little too much, and it's invasive. So, you know, at one point they thought it was the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. 
Yeah, and I, I know I've told this before, but I was leading a walk on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, and it was Dear Ann or, uh, or Ann Landers or Dear Abby, one of those mm-hmm. sisters anyway, and their hedge was made out of out of buckthorn. Oh. Because it, it, it would make a perfect hedge, I think, because it's, uh, as you say, it's hardy. It keeps its leaves well into winter, so it's just perfect for that. So I'm sure a lot of those um, buckthorns that we have have come from hedges and things, too. Right. And it serves it serves as a shelter for overwintering soybean aphid eggs. So that's uh, uh, on that balance sheet list where we put the list yes or no well that'd be a no right there big in capital letters mm-hmm. soybean aphid eggs are are not wanted it also buckthorn disrupts a balance of our natural world it pushes out desirable native understory plants it creates this dark dense thicket but it makes lovely carvings turnings and walking sticks i've got a walking stick that somebody made me oh it's decent firewood, you know, it's not always very big, and I've read and heard frequently that it causes digestive problems for birds, but there was a study done by Julie Craves in Michigan showed that while buckthorn is responsible for ecological crimes, it's not linked to harmful diarrhea in birds. Online articles abound claiming it damages birds, but I've seen no studies or peer-reviewed papers, and Julie Crave said she has not seen any, Hmm. showing that eating buckthorn fruit is harmful to birds, and it might not be the best food for them, but it's food. So it has some, oh, I don't know, maybe you're stretching good, but it has some qualities that are useful. A listener sent me a photo of a blue jay eating a Japanese beetle. So each week, somebody is sending me a photo of something eating a Japanese beetle. Yay! I really appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, The Hormel Nature Center has, on September 9th, Saturday, 9.30 till noon, they're having a honey harvesting open house, and it's really fun to see how they harvest the honey. And then on September 23rd, also Saturday at 10 a.m., they're having a wood turtle search with Dr. Jeff Tamplin. The Raptor Center is having an annual raptor release. It's a free event on Saturday, September 23rd also, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Carpenter Nature Center in Hastings. So those are really cool to see where they just... uh, uh, they bring in these raptors that they have rehabilitated and release them. So it's a wonderful thing. It just it makes you feel good. You just go, oh man. And I know uh, you got something from somebody about the hummingbird question. I just got one. Somebody said, "What are predators of adult hummingbirds?" Uh, let's see: cats, sharp-shinned hawks, bullfrogs, merlins, roadrunners down south, kestrels, spiders, snakes, robber flies, occasionally dragonflies, and songbirds. I think that'd be the most of them, anyway. But boy, when you're so small, it's just uh, you know, and you taste like chicken. <laughs> Everybody's gonna want to eat you. And and you got a question from Cheryl. About yes. hummingbirds? Hang on, i got to find it here for a second. I, okay. Yeah, she wanted, Cheryl had a question about hummingbirds. She was asking, hold on, here it is, it's in my 
All right, she says, hey, ask Al about hummingbirds dancing. I've been watching two hummingbirds go up 10 feet. It looks like synchronized flying. He goes, she says, it's probably some type of mating thing. So is it, or do they just like to dance? Is that uh, in the yard now, going on now? Yes, and she said they love her red salvia, too. Then it's probably they're engaging in a territorial dance. Oh. So it's just uh, like a dance-off. You know, <laughs> look at me, I can do this, and boy, you better get out of here, or otherwise. And the problem is, is that neither one is real sure the other one is tougher. Oh. So they're just, <laughs> they're doing this, and look how big I am, you better run, and oh gosh, she's not running. Or, they, they'll keep doing that, so they uh, well, they who? try to stand their ground and not oh. be intimidated, and very often one will just say, oh, oh, and then panic and get chased away, but it's a pretty <laughs> cool dance. Sometimes you'll see a, a hummingbird dancing by itself, kind of in the middle of the yard, Usually what's going on there is they are having a protein snack, uh, finding insects and chasing down insects. And Cheryl is right about the mating or courtship behaviors. That certainly happens earlier in the year, and they do that dance. Well, who wins then? then What what do you look for when you win? Is it like who has the best moves, like break dances, or is it just who just outlasts the other, has better stamina? I mean, I guess that's it. And then they get to uh, have the pleasure of being the one that will sit in a nearby branch and chase all the other ones off. Oh. And use all your energy chasing the other ones off. They also will do a little dance when they're uh, forming a nest, building a nest. They'll dance around, and I, yeah, I, I would think they're just excited and everything about this going on, and say, "Woohoo!" <laughs> so they they dance for a number of different reasons, and again, like most things that do that, maybe on occasion they just do it because they can. It's like sandhill cranes. You watch them, and you say, "Why? Why are they dancing out there now?" And I. I guess it's just because they can't. Well, now, somebody uh, just, of, Al, somebody just sent this and says, is it too late in the year to see hummingbirds? Well, obviously, Cheryl is watching them right now. So, and she's in, I know, northwest Wisconsin. So I'm thinking it's not too late to see hummingbirds. I mean, is there at a point when we won't be seeing them, like when it gets a certain temperature or time, or, or what happens when they disappear? Yeah, no, I'm seeing them here every day. I've got okay. these tiny little um, nectar feeders out and they uh, they come there, and it's the same thing. One has determined that that is her or his bailiwick and chases the other ones away. The adult males, it's too late to see them for the most part, but they're still females and the young ones. Oh. And they're still there, and they're coming to these feeders. And to them, our feeder is just like a flower, a section of flowers that they want to protect. So they will chase other ones away because they don't. They want to protect their food source, and they're not sure if that food source is everlasting, if it's going away, because so many of their food sources go away. So they will uh, fight that, and uh, they breed through uh, all of Minnesota, and they begin to migrate south probably as early as mid-August, and most of them leave the state by the end of 
September, although most years I see some stragglers well into October. But you can kind of say by the end of September they're going to be gone. So you have a whole month to watch them yet, I hope, and I hope they come to your yard. They're just, I don't know what there is. Their ability, their agility in flight, the way they can go backwards and buzz around, it's just amazing how well they can do that. I had uh, somebody uh, talk to me at church, and they said, do bees sting hummingbirds? Oh, you know, they could. They could sting hummingbirds because bees have stingers. They can use them, but it'd be a rare occurrence. Uh, both creatures, I think, are usually, they're too focused on gathering nectar to look for a fight. So hummingbirds will avoid bees by being agile and using quick flight movements. They flick their tail and have aggressive displays. Hummingbird feeders, of course, attract both and bees feed alongside the hummingbirds, but they will chase them if they feel threatened. So when there's many bees at a feeder, the hummingbirds opt to leave and they find other nectar sources. Red attracts hummingbirds, and they found that yellow attracts wasps and bees. So if we can avoid feeders with yellow insect guards or flower oh. accents to make your feeder uh, less attractive to insects, and, of course, so many of them come with those little yellow things on. I've got yes. one here that has a little yellow thing on. And what can you You could paint them somehow. Fingernail uh, polish. Red. Yeah. Yeah, so they'd be less attractive. So it's just uh, it's one of those things that happens, and it seems like every outfit that makes feeders makes those insect guards yellow. It seems odd if you're going to have an insect guard. So you don't <laughs> to want insects them. there. You make them. <laughs> yellow to attract them so it hmm. but it's a, a great time of year to see the hummingbirds uh, they certainly remind us now that that uh summer is uh you know it's we get labor day and then we start seeing a lot of our birds leaving i've seen some nice waves of warblers and uh, they are waves of warblers in uh, several different ways. It means there's a lot of warblers all kind of together feeding. Sometimes I think they just follow chickadees around wherever the chickadees are. They figure there'll be food. And then there's also the wave where they are waving goodbye because it's that time of year for them to get on. If you're an insect eater, a lot of our barn swallows are, are not around now because they've already headed south. And if you're eating flying insects, you don't want to be stuck in Minnesota too late because <laughs> we run out of flying insects sooner or later. There have been some large ant swarms the last couple weeks, so you've seen a lot of swallows and Oh, uh, nighthawks, common nighthawks up there eating these uh, ant swarms. Uh, ants are tasty things for birds, so it, it puts them in a feeding frenzy. So why are the they swarming are now? What's the deal? Why they're doing it now? It's uh, for the next generation. So we have the queens and we have the drones up there flying around in wow. these mating swarms. And it's just a... Uh, happens every year around this time. Carpenter ants typically do it in the spring when they f have their mating swarms. We have cornfield and field ants that are probably the primary ones doing them in the summer. So it just uh, it brings great joy. All, also feeding on them are dragonflies. 
So the one day Gail and I were outside, there were uh, common nighthawks up high, and then there was a layer of swallows, and then below that was a layer of dragonflies, and they were all feeding on ants. And uh, I don't think we have to worry about there still being enough ants. These swarms are gigantic and colossal in numbers. So some almost survive, and the queens uh, will have plenty of ants for next year. So I don't think we have to worry about that. So, But it's, it's really a neat thing to see, and we love sitting on the deck and just watching them. And we'll get a number of different species of swallows feeding on them. It's a, a great time. Uh, you heard from John, you said, also of New Ulm, Karen? I did. John said he caught one more live cicada wasp, and <laughs> I'm not sure what he's doing with these cicada wasps. <laughs> but he said, and the song, he's talking about the Barbie movie. He really likes this Barbie movie, and he really wants me to see it. I have not seen it yet, John, but he says the song, Closer to Fine, you play once in a while, is from, or is in the Barbie movie. And he says, because of uh, the hot weather, yes, I've watched it again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good deal. So he he, uh, is enjoying that, and he says, uh, you know, you should, that I should uh, watch that, and he's highly recommending it. So thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, John. I should mention that I did read the article about you, and I can't remember when it was in the newspaper, but it was very well done and very interesting. So it was... uh, it was good to see that, and uh, man, that's uh, John's been at that job for some years, and that's a, a neat thing to see in this time because uh, people don't stick to one job that long anymore. We kind of move around, and so it's uh, I, it was uh, reassuring that there's folks out there that uh, hang in there. Like you, Al, hey, you've been around for a few years, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have, yeah. I've never had a real job. I don't. Well, yeah, I had real jobs as a kid, you know, a young fella and working at sod farms and those kind of things. And a turkey factory. I call it a turkey factory. I don't know. We didn't make turkeys there. But hey, thanks everybody for sitting on the front porch with us. This is something Minnesota. When the weather ball is glowing red, warmer weather's just ahead. When the weather ball is shining white, colder weather is in sight. When the weather ball is wearing green, no weather changes are foreseen. Colors blinking by night and day say precipitation's on the way. What was the weather ball? Well, the weather ball was a cultural icon that perched atop a 14-story Northwestern National Bank in Minneapolis for 33 years. It was unveiled in 1949. The weather ball was hailed as the tallest lighted sign between Chicago and the West Coast with a sphere's base 367 feet above the street and illuminated by one and a quarter miles of neon tubing. The Northwestern National Bank building was destroyed by an arson fire on Thanksgiving Day in 1982 that had started in an empty Donaldson's department store building. And since that day... People have been depending upon the weather rock. If the rock (laughs) is wet, it's raining. If the rock is swinging, the wind is blowing. If the rock casts a shadow, the sun is shining. If the rock is difficult to see, it's foggy. And if the rock is white, it's snowing. 
Hey, thank you, everybody. Remember, Heartland is while we're driving past. Thanks for listening. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. And uh, one last question for you, Karen. How did the boys do at the State Fair? They did great. We went on Saturday, and Blake did his talk on nuclear energy. He got a blue ribbon, and Grant did his uh, project on fluorescent minerals, and he showed the judge with his little black light how those fluorescent minerals light up and how the ions act and all that sort of thing. He got a blue ribbon, and then Blake had to go back yesterday on Monday to do his computer. He com- he constructed his own computer from scratch, ordered all the parts, and put it together. He got a blue ribbon on that, too, so we had a, a great time, but it was Boy. very hot. <laughs> I knew they'd do well, and I'm glad to hear they did, and I, I I have no doubt they had a wonderful time. We did. It was just a little warm, and the, the good thing at the fair, there's one place that's gluten-free, so uh, that's where we waited in line. So there. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so it was great. Thanks, Al. We always appreciate you. We'll talk to you next week.